0: Years, the defining factor of Asian investment into U.S. real estate was driven by high-profile and very splashy deals from the Chinese buyers. Think of Aung Bung's purchase of the Waldorf Astoria for nearly two billion back in two thousand and fifteen, or H and Group's two point two billion dollar purchase of the office building Two Four Five Park in two thousand and seventeen. But Chinese buyers are in retreat, and they've sold billions in the last few years. However, investors from Asia are still a key part of U.S. real estate. I'm Miriam Hall. this is BizNow Reports, and my guest today is Thomas Yu. He's the CEO of Willow River Capital Management. In our conversation, he's talking about where the next big group of Asian investors are coming from. He's talking about managing different cultural approaches to real estate and business, and the environment for loan sales, which he is handling more and more frequently. Well,
1: everybody has different strategies when it comes to, and real estate is obviously cyclical and we've had one of the longest um good times in terms of real estate cycle it it has it was very lo- long um and it's particularly because of the uh, interest rates being so low historically low and now we are uh on the opposite side of that cycle and this is sort of bad news for many of the core investors and and there are other various players, obviously, in the ecosystem of real estate. And this is the time for those investors who specialize in special situation investment, um, whether it's NPL, non-performing loan investment, uh, or various value-add uh, strategies that involves uh, inefficient capital stacks or real estate that has lost its luster because of macroeconomic issues.
0: So it's the sort of people who maybe haven't had a big moment in the past, but now it's, it's their moment to shine in a way.
1: That's right. So if you speak in terms of just normal consumerism, it's really the uh, discount shoppers who are, who are, who have the capital. It's the cash is king kind of era. And th- this is their time to shine.
0: Now, you, um, your business is focused on investing um, capital in real estate on behalf of Asian institutional investors. What kinds of deals are your investors looking for? And how does that differ from the institutions based here or in other parts of the world?
1: Most of the institution investors that we represent are insurance companies, pension funds, credit unions, uh, banks. So, the characteristics of these investors are uh, cash flow sensitive they're looking for cash on cash yield um steady income uh they're not necessarily looking for home runs they're looking for consistent reliable returns and that's been the thesis for the last uh ten plus years uh, but these are the rough times of real estate and those expectations are being underperformed right now.
0: So does that mean that people are lowering their expectations for returns?
1: Um, well, those legacy issues are running into defaults or what if they're on the lender side, the borrowers are giving back keys or they're, they're not paying their interest or They are not able to refinance their position, so many of these loans are running into maturity default, meaning they're paying their interest, but they have not paid their loan amount. So some of those troubles are being handled right now.
0: So what happens? Because, you know, everyone always says banks don't want to own a building. I can imagine that's particularly true when it's an overseas bank. Like a bank in Asia or, or a family office in Asia, they don't want to be running a, a hotel or, or running a New York office.
1: That, that's right. Um, and for them, it's even harder. Operating real estate um, in a foreign soil is not an easy task. And something that's operating well is is not easy. However, if there's troubles, it's even harder. Um, many trips, um, understanding the, the legal issues. It, it's a whole different level of management and you know, many sh- shops are having a hard time with it.
0: So what's it like for you? Are, are people ringing you? Are you having to arrange trips to the US? Are you having to look at properties or make calls? How, how is it all playing out in a practical sense?
1: It's all of the above. Many are looking for just you know, simple pointers, some are looking for um, hands-on management on on their behalf. Uh, many are also thinking uh, they want to uh, move on. And so in order to exit, they if they are in, in a lender, they have to sell their notes. And however, sometimes they're hesitant to hire the major uh, brokerage firms because it's it all over the news and then and so they're looking for a quiet um, sale of their positions.
0: So have you sold any notes lately?
1: Um, it, it, many are in process right now.
0: Can you give me any details on any of those? I know you just said you want to keep them quiet or people want to keep them quiet, but maybe speak as much as you can about the types of notes that you are selling, sure. and what the process well, is like.
1: Um, it, it's no secret. Uh, many of the Asian investors, especially foreign investors, they look to invest into trophy assets. So they're typically large in a very, um, very popular cities like you know, New York, San Francisco, and so on. Um, the Asians typically gravitate toward office. Um, the favorites are, you know, the trophy class A office, but also uh, hotels. Um, very little multifamily. It's more of a recent phenomenon for them, and also many uh, enjoy. Uh, the industrials, like the Amazon distribution centers, and so on. So those are the major food groups that they've been interested in and investing heavily in. And so if we translate to New York, yes, there's offices that have either they own the office outright or they are lenders in these offices. And and some of them are mezzanine positions. Uh, Some of them are in senior loan positions
0: and they're wanting to get out in many cases.
1: Um, Yes for either it's not performing well so the coupon that's anticipated is not is not being uh, cash flowed or it's you know they signed up for five-year loan but it's turned into seven-year loan and they need to move on uh, because they can't just stay on forever and also there's hedging contracts uh, they invest their uh, local currency, they hedge it, and these hedging contracts are expensive. When you try to extend them, it's quite difficult.
0: Are there people who are buying them? And is it other foreign owners and foreign investors who are interested in buying these notes? Like, who are you finding are, are snapping them up?
1: Yes. So as as we started the conversation, it's the prime time for special situation investors. So um these um cap- well capitalized specialized investors are um you know doing their diligence and they are um, looking heavily into these assets whether they are domestically owned or foreign owned, but you know they are note shoppers and, and so this is part of their mix.
0: Do you have, um, you know, one of the things that I've been hearing about these is there's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of comps around. Um, so there's not a lot of transparency into note sales because it have not happened that much yet. Is there anything you can tell us about what you've seen so far about how those sales are going?
1: Um, so every note sale is unique. Um, it, so for instance, if it's a senior loan, The original LTV was, say, 55-60%. Chances are those kind of notes will trade almost at par level uh, just because there was so much equity cushion. And those buyers of those notes are not really interested in taking over the coupon situation. They're, They're interested in taking the note, enforcing the remedies, and potentially taking over the property. And so for them, they're buying... If they even buy the note at sixty cents or sixty percent LTV, they are potentially buying the asset at sixty cents on a dollar. So that's their acquisition strategy, Um, and but if it's a mezzanine, now it gets tricky because some of the mezzanines are at the high LTV level when at the origination level, and during the origination, the valuation is quite high. So. Some mezzanine positions are actually underwater, and so those have heavily discounted. And those positions that still maintain some value, um, I've seen you know, 50% haircut, uh, some as high as 70% haircut, or some just don't get traded at all.
0: Are there people looking to um, get on in terms of a conversion of a property? I'm thinking, for example, in the last week. Um, and this doesn't relate to you but it's just a general market thing like in the last week we've uh, we've seen that the note on 1740 Broadway which is a Blackstone more previously Blackstone owned office building that is seven percent occupied tiny tiny level of occupation um, that note's going to be be sold and, and, and some of the commentary around it is well someone's going to buy it where th- at the basis that makes sense Um they might want to you know, they'll buy it if they think they can rent it at a very low cost for office, or they might buy it because they want to turn it into housing. Do you have an idea of what people are thinking along those lines? Are they thinking we should turn this into housing? Or are they thinking we'll just rent this cheaper?
1: Um, so the folks who believe in the housing conversion opportunity, and they've done that due diligence where some of these you know, not all offices can be converted if it's like, you know, deep, Um, you know, very dark, Uh, you have to punch in the courtyard and so on. Those are hard to work with. But some of the older assets, um, they actually are, you know, good candidates for conversions. And they tend to have more aggressive um, investors looking at them. However, those who are, there's no really options. It has to be office and it has to be, Uh, rented to an office tenant they are not getting the as much um, attention as the others because um, office market right now especially in the b plus a minus uh, segments uh, there's just too much inventory and the the demand side is not looking very healthy at this moment
0: Let's take a step back a little. You got your start in New York working for Young Wu, who's developed many interesting projects in the city. What what was it like working for him? Um, what, what did you learn?
1: Well, I learned a lot from Young, and he is a very dynamic, um, he, he thinks out of the box, and I think his creativity really added so much to the development uh, here in New York City. And one thing I learned is, he adds a lot of creativity to deal structuring, but also thinking out of the box in terms of the usage but and on top of that, he's super diligent. He would go through fifty different scenarios to see how to optimize an opportunity and and those are some of the you know hard work uh, but also creative um approach to things and that's that's my Probably biggest takeaway from working with young
0: and how did you transition into to this role that you're in now like how were you able to develop the relationships with people in the u s
1: so it's an interesting story where the the one of the interesting assets that was part of young Woo associates uh, was purchase of AIG headquarters building in two thousand eight now that was purchased at around one hundred dollars a square foot and it was using Korean capital. And that was probably one of the first generation of Korean capital investing into the US. It it was actually surprising because it's probably one of the most risky investments that you can do, buying into an empty building, trying to develop during a global financial crisis. So, but then when I was interviewing the, the Korean institutions, trying to uh, get them to invest into a fund. Um, this was, you know, dating to 2005-ish. They were hesitant to invest in the U.S. because the returns were not, you know, wonderful. But they were also investing into countries that are in Asia. They're more familiar, and that's how they were de-risking themselves by just, you know, uh, working in territories that they're familiar with. But you know, I told them that may not be aligned with their overall goal, which is consistent uh, return on their investment. So they should be working with uh, in markets that are very transparent and well-established, like U.S. or U.K. and so on. So that was my advice to them. However, a few years later, global financial crisis happened, and their investment thesis in investing in uh, developing nations in Asia and other parts of the world uh, suffered greatly. And then they realized, okay, Tom was right. We we need to be more like the U.S. institutional investors who um, match core programs with core markets. And that's where they started investing into U.S. and also uh, London and, and very, you know, Strong markets.
0: How did you, throughout the pandemic, I mean, how did you find um, the way that you operate change? Because the geopolitical issues and the connection between the US and many Asian countries, particularly China, did weaken a lot during that time.
1: So I think COVID really did um, create a, uh, it just put the brakes on everything. Um, I had a deal that was. Closing in two weeks, and that fell apart just because of um, people were just panicking and and so that's where i you know, I pivoted from investing uh, Korean capital to us to being more of a specialist who works on both angles investment but as well also divestment and special servicing and all various um, services that we can provide here in the U.S. to help them address many of the issues that that may be coming.
0: How have you seen the Asian investor profiles change over the last few decades?
1: So if you try to group the Asian capital, I think big categories were the Japanese money and the Singaporean. They've been around for a very long time. Uh, They've been consistently investing in the U.S. However, the Japanese capital went through significant down cycle during the '90s when um, when they were buying Rockefeller Center and they they actually um, there were certain tax laws that was uh, created just to defend against heavy Japanese investment in the U.S. Uh, They. they resulted in a lot of loss, Uh, they many of them exited the market and those who are very young members of these companies are now in charge of these Japanese investment arms and they still have those nightmares and and many are still hesitant to invest in the US Uh, but there are very strong players like Sumitomo and uh, Mori Trust who continue to invest in the US. There are the other consistent heavy uh, investors are really Singaporeans. You know, the GIC, Tamasac, uh major shops, uh, they have presence here in the US, uh, big investment. So I think they are the major force. Uh, now the newcomers, really the Koreans and, and Chinese uh, capital, I think the Chinese capital, had ups and had a severe downs um, and now they are unable to invest heavy into the U.S. Uh, it's mostly individuals uh, putting money together, but it, they're not a significant player. Uh, the Korean capital continues to uh, be make U.S. their number one destination for global investment. Uh, they are going through some legacy issues, um, so once they get through that, uh, I think we can see them come back into the uh, U.S. investment cycle.
0: What's driving the the um, Korean capital? I mean, why are they why are they suddenly so well capitalized um, and able to invest in U.S. real estate?
1: So that's a good question, and it probably takes a little longer to explain, but I'll give you a very condensed version. It is a it's probably the twelfth or 13th largest economy in the world, but the population's around fifty million. So it's a relatively small country, yet there's quite a bit of wealth, and just thanks to many of their global brands and so on. The country has been um, they have all types of pensions and various institutional um, investment arms. But they were heavily into um, bonds, you know, government treasuries and and their yields were not very attractive. And so they were constantly underperforming against their guidance. And what they discovered is real estate, the alternatives, actually has higher return. They're relatively uh, safer and they're very consistent
0: you know we talked about how there is an interest in those those note purchases now but but as you say, traditionally it's always been well foreign investors in general have been very interested in like large office properties in gateway cities and of course they're some of the most challenging part of the market at the moment how have you navigated that that shift and how have investors philosophies changed around that, those investments are you saying to them, I've got this great multifamily idea for you, or let's check out this student housing? <laughs> How is it going for you?
1: Um, so the investment uh, themes have diversified significantly. Um, you know, in the beginning, it was just, let's purchase shiny offices. And it, it continued to move, uh, let's do uh, structured finance. So let's get into preferred equity. Uh, mezzanine debt uh, senior senior debt and so not only in the uh, more sophisticated capital markets uh, strategies but also uh, various asset types Um, they were getting into medical offices um, looking into senior housing uh, student housing self-storage so they're fast learners. so the, the overall real estate strategies became more sophisticated uh, as time passed.
0: So so if, if Korean investors have been the newcomers, who, who do you think is next in terms of dominating investment in, in U.S. commercial real estate?
1: Well, you know, there's actually, there's always internationally, the U.S. has been a destination for all sorts of international capital. And at one point Russians were big investors in the US Um, I think these days it's the Middle Eastern capital that's been um, eyeing the US market Um, some Europeans uh, but on the Asian side uh, I think Japanese capital is making its move um, just because they have the lowest interest rate in the world and Using, you, they're leveraging their um, domestic lending or borrowing capabilities to make a move into the U.S. So there's some of that happening. But I, I see the Koreans coming back pretty soon.
0: When an Asian investors invest in developments, what kind of role do they want to have? Do they want to be quite at arm's length or, or, or do they want like regular updates? Like, do they want site tours? How, how does it work?
1: They are a bit more um, involved in terms of, but they want to be a financial investors, they do not necessarily want to be uh, on the development side. However, they would like to get updated um, as much as the the domestic investors, but sometimes they need these for internal reporting purposes, they need special care. uh, And there is that extra layer of care that's involved with Korean institutions.
0: Special care, what, what, what's that? Is that because of their public presence?
1: Um, just their compliance issues. And mm. they, they have internal reporting, maybe auditing. And so when let's say there is an auditing process and they have to go through their books and all their investments. Sometimes they have to reach out to just, just to get an update instead of their quarterly reports. It's not necessarily good enough. So they would reach out and say, can we get update on this and that. Mm. So there is some customized care involved and And also, I think they also are getting a bit smarter in terms of uh, managing their own investment. So in many cases, if they're investing into the, uh, some a shop's discretionary fund, they have asked them to have a Korean presence. So open a shop there or have an agent. Who is dedicated to talk to them so because they don't want to make the two a m phone calls
0: I can see that there would be a big difference between compliance in the u s and compliance in Korea just because countries operate differently that's right does does there is there ever a communication breakdowns that come about because of that I think
1: if absolutely uh, <laughs> uh, and some of the frustrations by I, I and I hear both sides of the fence so Maybe the U.S. fund managers will say, wow, they're just so, you know, high maintenance. (laughs) They just, you know, every morning I get like five emails, you know, that kind of thing. And then on on the Korean side, when I hear them out, they would say, you know, we're just one of 500 people who are invested into their funds. And so we don't get that personal care. And, you know, it, it just it's a bit frustrating when we have to do reporting and nobody really answers our, our requests and so on, or it takes too, too long to uh, answer our requests and so on. So, you know, I see complaints from both sides of the fence.
0: I can totally see that. And I guess you are sort of trying to ease the, uh, ease the issues there sometimes.
1: I am the peacemaker, but also the communicator. I've, you know, I am bilingual, so I'm able to speak literally in both languages just so that people can understand each other but you know we made we came a long way you know 12 13 years investing in the us created a lot of um, you know technology transfer and so they are able to and and also the the talent pool has increased substantially so it, it is much more robust uh, investment-based
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: That's Thomas Yu. He's the CEO of Willow River Capital Management.